Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. We are live in the Asia Tech Podcast studio. This is Pitch Deck Asia. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Stephen Tracy and Gerald Ang. Gentlemen, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. You are the co-founders of Milieu. Yeah, I'm the founder of Milieu, and then Steve joined us about five months ago. Okay, great. So we're going to learn about the world of research and Milieu, and also your stories as well, your backgrounds. Where are you both from originally? Like yourself, Gerald. Yeah, so I have about 10 years of market research experience, yeah. uh, and about eight years of that spent across like Southeast Asian markets. So I spent about a year in Philippines, I spent about a year in Vietnam, and I spent about six years in Thailand. Right. Uh, in my most recent job, I was working for an online agency. And then I realized that there were a lot of pain points within the online research space as well. So I decided to come back to Singapore about three years ago. I took a three-year coding bootcamp, the kind of a three-month coding bootcamp to kind of understand the basics of technology. Mm. Spent about a year building the product up. And then now we are all systems go. So we just launched our commercial platform about a month ago. Mm. Um, and we're really excited about what it will bring to the market. Excellent. And you're, you're originally from Singapore. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was originally from Singapore. <laughs> Singapore <laughs> by heart. Yeah, born and bred. But you've lived all over. We got that. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, what about yourself? Where are you I'm, from? Yeah, I'm Canuck. So I'm from uh, Toronto originally. So uh -huh. I moved to Singapore about eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and I've, uh, yeah, been in Singapore for a while. What brought you to Singapore? Uh, my wife's Singaporean. So yeah. we uh, we met in uni years ago. And we kind of did long distance for a while. Um, yeah. She was in San Fran for a while. And then we kind of, we got married and settled down in Toronto. Mm. And then we kind of floated the idea of coming back for two years. Mm -hmm. That was eight years ago. I have two kids now and we're kind of dug in now. So, so Excellent. Yeah. It's a great place to be. Yeah, it is. Interestingly, you both worked for similar companies as well in your background. You both worked for YouGov. Yeah. So yeah. if people don't know the world of research... Maybe you can just kind of explain a little bit about these companies. Yeah. There's a lot of companies who've been around for a long time doing a similar kind of research, haven't they? Yeah, the the research industry is big and it's a bit messy. And so I'll start with the overview of the industry. But we, you know, that's kind of a good segue into Milieu because we kind of see ourselves as uniting what are what's now about three or four different companies into one offering. Mm. But so the research industry as a whole is a, it's pretty big. It's a $46 billion industry. And it involves a lot of different things. It involves, um, you know, big full service agencies, um, like the big names like an Ipsos or Nielsen that um, have the research designers and, and lots of different offerings. You also have suppliers or recruitment uh, companies that can connect you with audiences. So if you want to do whether it's traditional offline research or online, there's a big um, kind of vendor uh, supplier space. And then you have a lot of things in between. You've got research consultancies that are kind of doing everything, but all these companies are kind of working together. So the big companies don't generally have their own panels. So they buy supply from right. the, the under A panel industry. being like a group of... Yeah, so an, a panel, customers. panels are, be, the definition of that is becoming more blurred, but generally uh, when you talk about online panels, there are companies that essentially manage a big database of people and their offering is that they can get you scale data sets like N yeah. equals a thousand rep responses uh, in like a couple days or, or a week or two weeks. Okay, Yeah. great. Well, the good thing is, and this is a theme that we have uh, been visiting the last few weeks here on um, Pitch Deck Asia is, the corporate dropout and how important they are in the startup ecosystem. There's a sort of this narrative about these young 19-year-old kids out of Stanford University going and starting a billion-dollar app. Mm -hmm. Yet what I'm finding investors are most interested in right now is the guys who've got 10 years' experience in, a, in an industry, and they know what's broken. 
And then yeah. they come out and say, I want to fix that because yeah. I've felt that on the other side. You know, I've understood that pain. I'm not necessarily going to change the world, but I'm going to fix a problem that these people have on a daily basis, right? Yeah. Yes. So we're going to go there when we talk about milieu. So maybe we can start with the pitch deck and have a look at that. Yeah. You shared that with us. We're not going to walk every slide yeah, yeah. through, but let's just sort of take some of the key points. And may I start with the the slide number three, which is the problem. So before you even get into that, I'll actually say it's kind of funny because um, this is our standard pitch deck, but we've actually found we can go through it, but we don't even use, we don't find that we even yeah. use the deck that much because go we've got such a cool <clears throat> platform that when we go right, and talk to clients, it. we show our app, which is how we collect data. And then we show the platform, but, um, but yeah, so. <laughs> All right. Well, in the interest of standardizing it, yeah. we'll just use the pitch deck for now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. What is the problem? Yeah. So basically the idea here is that I've been talking to hundreds and hundreds of clients within the research industry for the past like 10 years. Yeah. Um, and I can categorize the pain points that clients face. So research buyers face within the industry into three core areas. Um, first and foremost, research is just really plain tedious. Mm. So while you rather spend your time to make business decisions for the good of your marketing campaign, you're spending like 50% of the time on the administrative work that goes into commissioning and running a research study. Uh, and it's really, really highly distracting for marketers. Mm. So that's the first point. Um, the second kind of pain point is market research is just too slow. So 10 years ago, maybe a marketer may be handling maybe the four to five campaigns throughout a year. Uh, but because of digital marketing proliferation, a single marketer might be handling like four to five campaigns in a single month. Yeah. And therefore, the long lead time of research simply doesn't cut it in terms of provide, providing insights in time to answer the business questions. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is uh, research is plain expensive. And I think all the research buyers in the audience uh, right now will kind of like, you will resonate very well with them. And what I see is that a lot of research buyers are kind of selectively choosing which campaigns they want to run research on. Mm. While it's more valuable to have consumer insights across all the campaigns you run throughout the year. So are they being selective just because of budget? Yes. Both, right. selective Both budget, budget. And, and the lead yeah. time. So they, right. you know, yeah. ideally everyone wants to have a bit of data um, to make decisions on kind of every step of the way, whether it's early stage ad or concept test to late stage, but they can't really run a poll or a research study or collect data because it's going to take two weeks and cost right. them 10K for a small project. Yeah. And so the thing I didn't mention before was before my last company, which was a research company, I was um, kind of, I worked in uh, digital agencies. So the kind of the big, whoops, big, big agencies running in-house analytics teams. And I was a longtime buyer of research from, mm. from, uh, from companies like now like Milieu. And so I've, I kind of had a perspective of both the, the pains of buying and selling research. And so when I met um, uh, Gerald about a year ago, when he showed me what, it, what he was working on, I was like, it just resonated from being on both sides of the, the mm. fence. Mm. Um, Cause it, it's, it's, it's tough um, being the seller because it's still a very manual business. And although online research is supposed to be really fast, it's still you still have to do a lot of manual processes from scripting surveys to getting field work done. Um, so it's it, there are pain points on both sides sides of the fence. So you, you come from the agency world. How would it work in that context? If I'm an agency buyer, mm -hmm. um, 
where does it start and how long does that take? And so, for example, if I have, we have this campaign, which we're going to launch, you know, and we have some kind of soap powder, for example, yeah. we want to go and test what people's reaction is to this new innovative soap powder. We would go out and ask a panel, right? Yeah. So how does that process normally work and how long does it take? Yeah. So if you're doing online, there's lots of different ways and we, to collect data and online is just one type of research that you can conduct. And, mm. you know, we would certainly never say that it's the only type of research you should be doing um, traditional there's still you know very valuable um, reasons why you would do or lots of reasons why you would still do like traditional focus groups and stuff like that but traditionally you know in an eight in my agency days there were a couple of use cases one was pitch support we'd want to go into a new pitch with some kind of right. relevant and robust data yeah if you go back like 10 years ago when I first joined the industry the standard was like friends and family surveys you wanted to get some insight for a pitch and mm. you'd do a survey monkey survey to like 40 people and so clients started to kind of around probably 2012, 2013, when the kind of whole analytics and data industry really kind of took off, um, or at least from my perspective, clients started to demand more data-driven solutions or solutions backed by data or uh, or good insight and more robust. So the friends mm. and family things didn't really work. So usually, and the other use case is campaign planning. So if you have an existing client, but you go to them with a campaign, they want to know like, you know, who you're targeting, what's the rationale behind it. So usually what happens is, um, if I'm an eight, a brand agency planner or even a brand marketer, I would commission a project. I'd go to a research company. Sometimes I go direct to the supplier. Sometimes I go to a consultancy. Mm. I give them a brief. You spend like a week or a week and a half just just defining the specs. Who are you going to interview? Are there quotas on gender or age and things like that? Once you get all that settled, you get pricing finished, then you go into designing the questionnaire. And this is the funny part because questionnaires, everyone wants to design their own unique questionnaire. The reality is every single day, millions of surveys go out and they're all kind of the same. There's just little tweaks on wording and things. And, and so we, we, we've standardized or attempted to standardize a lot of uh, common use cases for research. But the questionnaire design takes a couple days to a week. Then you finally get to field, uh, which for online takes five to seven days. For traditional, it can take like a month. Mm. And then after that, you've got to process your data. Um, so you've got to clean out bad interviews. Um, you have to turn it into formats that the client wants. And that can take, you know, for online, a minimum two to three weeks. For mm. offline, it could be months. And the, the biggest problem as a buyer that I observed was you go through all this engineering to have like a day at mm. the end to actually analyze it. So you've gone through all this work and then you have very little time to actually interpret the data and make a good decision on it. Yeah. And so we're what Milieu's trying to do is to turn that and to really streamline the engineering part and data collection so that research essentially just becomes the single interval. So it's very, it's kind of frictionless. You can just mm. collect the data, get it back really quickly and just go on with, with launching your campaign or product. So in the traditional world, we're talking months. Yeah. Tradi yeah, traditional. If you're doing like shop alongs or you're actually recruiting physical physical groups, if it's online, it depends on you know how niche the target audience is. Yeah. But even for online, the standard is about seven days for data collection, five uh -huh. to seven days. Right, that's just the collection. You're not talking about the actual yeah. designing. Yeah. And that's just yeah. one use case. If right. you extrapolate it across the entire marketing campaign, yeah. if you're running research across all the different stages from ideation all the way to execution, that mm. can stretch for months. Definitely. Yeah, and if you're doing four to six a month month as yeah, you say exactly then it would just kind of like go haywire or you kind of begrudgingly kind of leave out the insights part yeah but it's not not always a good idea to rely on gut instinct when it comes to consumers and absolutely right? yeah. yeah okay into the solution so cool. let's go into the pitch deck we have a look at what you've built 
So you've only um, just gone live as well. So put this into context. So, so yeah, yes. there's two parts to the business. If you're looking at this slide on the left side, um, where it says consumer panel, that kind of talks about our app. So the way that we collect data is through a mobile app. So our, our panelists will essentially join our app by downloading it from the yeah. Apple or Google Play Store. Um, and that's actually been running for a year. So in Singapore, it launched a year ago. In Thailand, it launched... Was it About eight? like nine months ago. Nine months mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. And so we, we spent a lot of time, I say we like I've been here since before November. <laughs> I joined in November. So um, the team was was collecting data for a long time. Um, and then our commercial, so that we could pre-collect data for the product because we have two offerings. One is a syndicated data set, which is kind of pre-collected data you can access on mm. the fly. Mm. And the other is a platform you can use to launch studies very quickly. Um, and so we launched the panel and ran it for about a year so we could collect kind of a critical mass of data. Okay. But the actual customer products that, that are, that are actual paying customers can can purchase uh launched um last november okay um, so you're building a, a two-sided market effectively yeah. here you've yeah. got on the one hand the consumers who are providing the data yes. and you've got the brands and maybe you know their service companies you know buying that data on the yes. other side in the traditional agency and research model where's the focus usually been in that and are you sort of doing it a different way to what other people are doing yeah, so I think like Steve mentioned about the different stages in terms of um, how tedious it is to run a research yeah. study. Uh, what we have done is to basically build a proprietary data engine that automates all these processes. Mm. And so the only lead time that you have is just field work. And the rest of the lead time in terms of questionnaire design and review as well as data processing has been kind of like compressed right. into single day intervals. So for clients, uh, basically, they can get the data back within the same day as well if they're running, say, an N equals to 200 study. Yeah. So you launch your concept study in the morning, go for lunch, come back, you have the results, you can move forward with your awesome. decision. So it's really, really different from the traditional way that you run research. The, the other <coughs> thing, too, is the it's kind of a, it's the full package. So even today, one thing we like to talk about is if you commission research today, it looks exactly the same as it did like eight or 10 years ago. And so it's kind of shocking because in other, like the marketing tech space, mm. it's kind of evolved really quickly. And so even today, when you launch a study, um, online, you'll still get Excel or flat flat files, and so uh, which then you need to spend all this time kind of pivoting, and mm. and so uh, we you can launch plat research on our platform easily, um, but we also deliver. We've created this really um, user focused um, dashboard, so you don't have to be a PhD or statistician to use it. You can analyze the data really easily in the platform. Um, you can you can deep dive into the data and do really kind of technical analysis if you need to, and so. That's that. That was a thing that really struck me when I first first met Gerald because, again, I was as the buyer. I was always I was always excited to get my data because I had designed it, yeah. but I was always really annoyed to get an Excel file because it was just like, there's got to be a better Gosh. way than this. Yeah, no, completely. It's a pain point, isn't it? Yeah. If you're moving the research um, cycle, the the span from weeks to same day. Yeah. In in some cases. You know, that's obviously a real bonus to anybody who's buying research. Yes. What I'm interested in is, is now that you're doing that, how does it actually change behavior? So how does that change the behavior of a buyer? Because, you know, if I can now commission research in a day and get it back in the same day, I'm going to approach things a little bit differently, right? Because if, if it took weeks and weeks, yeah. like you said, and, you know, like I maybe cut bits out as well, because, yeah. you know, I wanted to expedite the whole thing. 
then you know maybe it's a bit of a chore for me. But now if I'm getting this sort of very quick, exactly. you know, agile yeah. research panel come back to me straight away, I might start doing more of it, or might start taking exactly. more risks and so on. So I think like like in in the in the traditional way, how clients run research is to run like a forty five minute to one and a half hour survey together. So mm. they compile all the questions, collect all the questions, and they run it in one single wave. Uh, what we're giving the clients the ability to do is to just run the questions that they need to at that certain point of time. Right. So mm. they get the most up-to-date data yeah. and then they can move on from there. Right, so, so they're running maybe fewer questions and yeah. more targeted. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. So before they had to throw in all the questions because it's exactly. like, this yeah. is the last chance you're going to get yeah. for two yeah. months now, let's yeah. do it all now. Yeah, and then you, you, you have to leverage that data for the next six months. Right. Well, right now you get yeah. same day results for exactly what you need. Right, so they're going to ask fewer, more targeted questions. Yep. Okay, that's interesting. And more reactive to how the market is changing as well. Yeah. Right. How does that then affect the consumers on the other side if they're getting more targeted questions come through rather than, you know, sometimes it can be a chore, isn't it? You're going through all these sort yeah, of quite random so questions. So when I, when I created this company, I always had this hypothesis that in the ecosystem of clients buying research and right. agencies selling research as well as consumers or respondents doing surveys, uh, consumers are always the most abused. Mm, mm. Meaning they get to do really, really long surveys, not a very good experience as well. What we have done with our mobile app platform is to only allow our respondents to do five minute or shorter surveys. Mm. And as a result, we are collecting much cleaner data because we don't have to encounter like respondent fatigue. Yeah. So tell, which tell definitely me about this point. About, yep. So five minutes, this is quite an important point. So basically it? we have kind of like transformed survey taking experience from where they take a big Mac survey yeah. 45 minute one hour long um, in one single kind of like taking yeah. uh, to kind of five minute short surveys that they take in little pockets of time they have in throughout the day like on the way to work and on the way home yeah, yeah. Uh, and that has helped us in terms of response rates as well as retention rates as well mm. so just yeah. on this um, his point earlier about um, kind of experience so you can give this a test if you go onto the app store and type in paid surveys or surveys just try out some of the other platforms out there and none of them have really caught on a lot of the other competitors haven't really caught on the importance of experience so most of them built their survey taking the online um, research industry has been around for about 20 years most of them built their survey taking experiences on desktop first and right. kind of pivoted to mobile and what a lot of them do is actually they built kind of an app but they're just still loading a browser inside of the app and so you get these long load times Oftentimes, the consumer or panelist will go through a five-minute pre-screening just to find out they got screened out of the survey, and it's just a really fr like friction. Um, it's just a, a very frustrating experience. And so, when you try our app, it, it was it was designed for mobile, um, and it's it's just it's a very enjoyable experience. And mm. our survey our panelists seem to really like the platform because they, um, you know, our reviews are quite good. But the other point about moving a forty-minute uh, brand tracker to a five-minute survey, the reason reason we're able to do that is some interesting innovations where we can actually break a 40-minute survey down into modules and field them at different times because mm. we can pre-target across surveys. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're after, we talk a lot about um, business and digital transformation. What we're actually talking to some of our clients about is kind of like insights or data transformation because we're having to help them uh, along this journey of taking their really kind of traditional brand trackers that have been up for like eight or 10 years mm. and are 45 minute long surveys that are taken on desktop to, to helping them figure out how to break those down into more modular 
um, and and uh, easier to take um, surveys. Right. And so we like we have this crazy idea that if the survey taking experience doesn't suck, that you'll get better quality data. And we feel that's actually that's really well reflected because our response times are really really good. Our app reviews are quite quite high, and our panel seem c- quite engaged with our platform. Mm. And how, how do you actually? encourage or motivate people to in, in take part in these panels what what's the sort of deal i mean you so, know, traditionally was it just paying people or? yeah most most panels they they have a churn rate where they have to continuously bring new people in mm. to overcome the people dropping off um, and what they usually do is paid advertising to recruit people into the panel. Once you're on pa- the panel, the basic value exchanges, you get sent surveys, you get points for those surveys. And most panels have like a marketplace where you can right. turn those points into like cash or things like that. Um, with our platform, we when the app when the survey first launched or our app first launched, we had paid paid uh, advertising for about three weeks. And it it was the organic growth was it was exceeding the paid growth. Mm. We switched it off, and our panels, which are now between the two countries, more than two hundred thousand are mm. have been completely unpaid. Mm. Um, and so we have a referral mechanic where if you share you share a referral code, you both get kind of a a points boost. But um, it's kind of word of mouth. People right. are sharing the. So app you, you're not using paid advertising to recruit people. Not anymore. Uh, however, the people on the panel are they paid or I mean, but they just yeah, exchange points. So they exchange points for kind of incentives. Right. Okay. As so well. every single survey they take, they'll yeah. get between two and three three hundred points. Yeah. Right. And then we've got kind of a big marketplace where you can turn those points into charitable donations, uh, grab credits, or um, or even hard cash via PayPal or PayNow. Okay. The other thing that's quite. Uh, cool about our app is most panels, it's pretty, uh, the engagement's pretty tra- transactional. You, you take a survey, you get points and you leave. We have a mechanism where we give a lot of data back to the panelists, which is for some reason quite new and innovative. Yeah. Um, and so we run every day about four or five really topical polls in every country where we run panels in. And they're u- these are usually very um, relevant things to the country, something, some policy thing in the news, or mm. maybe it was the Singapore mm. budget. And so when you open the app and you vote on those questions, you actually get to see how everyone else in the country votes. Wow. And that creates a lot of stickiness. So pe- we actually find, based on our in-app analytics, that a lot of people are coming in just to share this content. Yeah. Yeah, is that is that such a radical idea? That it's, it, it's, it's amazing it, it, that you it, it, actually yeah. see the results yeah. of the survey you took part in. Yeah. It's, it's like, kind it of like, <laughs> it's kind of positioning as a your voice matters right, kind right, of approach exactly. more than uh, you yeah. get paid for your opinions kind of approach, and yeah. that allows us to get much better data quality as well. Because yeah. with the your voice matters approach, they're more incentivized to be honest about their opinions as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's a great insight as well. Have you found that? just by sharing the results with people makes them feel more part of it. Yeah. You're going to get that stickiness. And then also, you know, people come back and refer other people, share the information with their friends. Yeah. You get the right, more of the right people on the panel as well that you want, you know, doing it for the right reasons, yeah. I suppose, is important, isn't it? So. That's a really good point, too, because we also have a lot of QC uh, measures to boot off the people that we don't want on the panel. And there's this kind of, at least, it's not really spoken about a lot publicly, but in boardrooms, every every uh, company that we go to that's maybe more seasoned research buyers always ask, what's your strategy for professional panelists? And professional panelists mm. are essentially a problem in the supply industry, where these are people that join every panel in town and they're at worst just creating like 10 accounts and just almost like like bitcoin mining points on these platforms and not right. really paying attention at worst, or worse still, they're they're pretty sophisticated. They're writing scripts and like just kind of like that Simpsons episode where Homer's kind of got that button. Yeah. Uh, so, but so we uh, we've 
found a, a formula through a, a lot. It's not just one quality control mechanism. It's, it's, we've got quite a few different ways of doing this, but the fact that we're mobile only means that we have a really controlled ecosystem for uh, making sure that people only have one account per device. Mm. Uh, so when you try to create more than one account on a single device ID, both accounts get banned. Um, we do things like in-survey uh, tension checks, which are random, and if you fail three of those, I shouldn't be saying this to to the panelists listening, but <laughs> if you fail three of those, you essentially get booted from the panel. And so those things, we actually, we suspend 20% of old people that join the panel, oh. which is kind of a weird thing to be proud about, but we feel that those are actually the people that we want to get yeah. off of right. the panel so we can fo focus on and, good and quality. It's kind of necessary on an online research uh, space because mm. you're not there to interview the respondents, so you do need to sieve out people that give bad quality responses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting, 20%. I mean, if you're doing that quite aggressively to protect the quality of the respondents, it makes you ask questions about those that aren't doing that. I mean, how valid their results are, right? You know, and the fact that that yeah. sort of, I mean, you know, we see this issue with advertising online and so on and the validity of like those sort of results yeah, and so on. Ad yeah. fraud viewability. Exactly. Yeah. It's I actually, we really think that this professional panelist issue is not publicly spoken about a lot, but yeah. it's something that we think is probably going to get a little bit more traction because a couple of years ago, you had a lot of debate and discussion about the issues of ad fraud, yeah. which actually in, in, it resulted in some big changes to the industry and how um, the, the media agencies uh, or the trading desks run their their platforms. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the journey of Milieu. Um because, I mean, you've got a few slides on your pitch deck. Maybe you can jump in and just have a look at those. And bearing in mind that not everybody can actually see this. Some people are listening. So we might have to get a bit sort of sure. illustrative. Yeah. Um, and sort of where you've come from with this. Um, you've mentioned some of the data already. 200,000 users, up to 30 million uh, opinions. What, what have you learned in this process? Because, uh, I mean, you, Stephen, you've come into the the game in november so yeah. you, you've been here what four months five five four, months five months now that. so and you're obviously here for the the whole story <laughs> yeah, gerald yeah. starting out because you, you said you, you went out and you coded this yourself you had an idea about what it could be um what do you know now a year in more than a year in how long sort of yeah a bit more a year and a half in what do you know now about your journey that you didn't know when you started out? What, what are you doing differently about yeah, this? Yeah, so when I first started out, I thought it would be kind of like a plain sailing journey where you just kind of like focus on the product and build it and instantly you'll be successful. And yeah. in between and the past three years, I've noticed that it's not so simple. <laughs> there are a lot of problems along the way. So yeah. for example, I built the app off the back of just about 50K in spend. Um, and launched a minimum viable product just to kind of understand where, where I should head with. Uh, and two weeks after launch, after getting 2,000 users to join the platform, the whole platform crashed. Mm. And then I had to learn about tech development and the ability to kind of build a tech team that will handle the volume of kind of business that we're getting. Um, so it's all about kind of thinking ahead, thinking ahead mm. about the different problems you'll face, like not only just one week ahead, but like two months ahead. And kind of preempting that and solving that before it happens. Yeah. Uh, and that's the kind of key learning I have in terms of how the many, many different problems and obstacles I faced in the past three years of building yeah, this yeah, business yeah. up. It's the only way to learn yeah. in, in many cases. I mean, like Steve also experienced some of that in the past five months of joining as well. Right. <laughs> it was my first startup. I've worked in uh, medium to large size businesses. So it's it's all new for me. 
and we had uh, our first kind of mini internal kind of <laughs> not a big deal, but a you know a kind of a tech crisis last December. But but our team, we're we're a lean team. We've got seventeen people across three countries, yeah. um, and and we're we're a really close knit team. And I think we produce uh, we do a lot for the size of the team. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's just really comforting knowing that everyone's kind of on the ball, and uh, we've got a great group uh, working on on the product. Excellent. Good. Well, let, let's, I mean, now that you've mentioned the geographical footprint of the team, um, maybe we can flash out the pitch deck as, as well. You've got some data here. Um, I just want to shoot forward here because you've, you've broken this down on the pitch deck. So for those that are listening, let me explain. You've got the Singapore community and the Thailand community snapshot. Can you talk a little bit about this? My understanding is this is your users. So these are your panelists effectively, yeah. right? So you've, you've, flagged up Singapore and Thailand. Tell me a little bit about the numbers here. So when it comes to panels, um, there's actually uh, three numbers for the audience to, that are always good to, to ask a, a panel or supplier about. One is called right to contact, which is the total panel size, um, which is always going to be the biggest number. Uh, the next is max feasibility or essentially your active panel. And so that's an important distinction because you could have a million panelists, but if only 5,000 are active, right. what's the point of having a million? And the last is max rep, which is kind of a technical term, but max rep essentially is in five days of field work, how many representative uh, samples could you deliver if you kind of pulled all the punches? And that's an important measure because it doesn't matter. It, our, our value isn't just delivering a thousand of the first interviews we get. That's what we call river sampling which are just, you might end up with 90% males or, mm. you know, 80% um, kind of 18 year old. So what we always do is we deliver rep weighted and rep audiences. So if we do a thousand interviews, we will deliver a kind of a nat rep or online rep audience. And so, um, our, so max rep is usually the number, which is how many total surveys can we deliver that are representative? So our panel in Singapore is about 30,000, which is RTC. Um, and we have a, we have a very good kind of monthly active rate, which is just above 10, 10,000. Um, and actually most panels in around that size because of, a of uh, in Singapore, um, uh, in, uh, your job is, or uh, when you're managing a panel, you want to find the equilibrium where it's not too big, but it's big enough that you can do lots of kind of, you can build rep audiences yeah. inside of that group. Thailand is considerably bigger, part, partly because um, they really love our app and it really took off fast. Um, mm. But in Thailand, the the lay of the land is a little bit different when it comes to smartphone penetration, online penetration. Um, and we have to do a little bit more work to build those rep audiences. So mm -hmm. in Singapore, smartphone rep is the highest in the world, arguably. And so the, the population that has access to the internet and smartphones is very close to the total population. It's not quite the same in markets like Thailand. So we manage a bigger panel so that we can make sure that we get demographic uh, distribution and we can kind of weight our data sets. Okay. So yeah. to your point here about the, the comparison of the numbers, you've got 30,000 odd here in Singapore, 150,000 in Thailand. Obviously you've got a history in Thailand as yeah. well. So that helps a lot here. Um, my question would be about what else could this be? I mean, we're on the doorstep of places like Indonesia and you yeah. know, whenever we talk about Southeast Asia, Indonesia is always thrown in because it's yeah. pretty much 80% of the population yeah. of, you yeah. know, especially down this way, right? So what's your thoughts on the geography of- I mean, we definitely want to expand across all the six core markets in Southeast Asia. So mm. we have four more markets to go to complete that six markets. Uh, but what we really want to do now is to kind of stabilize our tech development, stabilize our implementation of like expansion to new markets before we do it. Yeah. 
Um, but it should be happening within the next few months okay. in terms of market expansion. We, uh, especially <clears throat> as you know, Singapore being the hub that it is, uh, we've got to we've got to get into those other markets because yeah. there's so many regional buyers here that want to do like four or five market studies. Yeah. So our our ro- our regional rollout um, is going to be really important to us. Okay, uh, I think it's it's good to hear. You know what you're saying is like we want to master this market exactly. first before we sort of stretch ourselves because it's tempting, isn't it? When you've got like 250 yes. million people yes. next door it's easy to throw your hat in the ring and then just get eaten up alive, right? Yeah. So, you know, you've got to get that right. Um, and you just mentioned it, Stephen, as well, and maybe we can just, in the last few minutes, have a look. There's something that interested me, because you're talking about the buyers, and there's some interesting case studies here. Um, and I saw this one, because this is an industry that I've known from my previous life, like advertising pre-tests, mm-hmm. and, um, and how important it is to validate this because for so long it wasn't validated. What's going on here? This is one of the case studies that you have in your pitch deck. Can you tell us a little bit about so, yeah. where this works? So there's two parts of the product. One is called portraits, which is a pre. So the slides you saw before, which is the portraits coverage, mm-hmm. it, they're essentially pre-collected variables right. that we have, and we constantly go out and uh, and and recollect. And so it allows you to, uh, like a, a brand planner or an agency planner, log in and just access over a million variables that have already that are already there so you don't have to launch the study um, so if it, when it comes to profiling we probably already asked the questions so mm. you can use portraits for that studies is where you can create new data and launch studies and you can either script up your own study using like a survey monkey style kind of uh, tool uh, but we also what you're looking at now are pre-programmed studies and this is really cool because now you don't have to be a research expert to know how to design questions we've designed what we think are kind of best of breed survey modules that cover a wide range of common research use cases early or late stage um, ad tests uh, early or late stage concept tests, price optimization studies crisis impact brand dipstick. So all you need to do is go in and add in a brand list or upload your your assets, your video or your mm. your, your campaign assets and hit launch and choose your audience. So um, that's what this is. Um, this is kind of an overview of what the test is, uh, what kind of metrics you'll get back. And, and like I said, it, it takes the pain away from survey design and scripting because it's already pre-programmed. You just need to go and hit launch and, and add in your assets. And this kind of goes back to the earlier point about um, choosing your battles mm. right now, you know, when it comes to say an, a product idea to the campaign launch to the execution, there's lots of stages and generally people are kind of choosing where they want to do research because it's too expensive and it takes too long. But with these kind of accelerators, like pre-programmed studies and the shorter turnaround time, mm. you can do it uh, as, as often as you want. So you can do an early stage concept test and a late stage and, and then do the brand dipstick and the, and the campaign effectiveness right. study. Is it all based on the fact that you have most of that data already? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we can, uh, another cool thing about our platform is we can pre-target more than a thousand consumer segments. So the industry standard right now is unless you want to do like a total population survey, like GenPop, you need to run what are called screeners. Mm. So if you want to interview iPhone users, you've got to run a question that says, are you an iPhone user or something like that? And you screen out the people that don't qualify. That pisses off the panelists because yeah. they get screened out and it kind of, for the buyer, you waste a question on a screener. Because we have portraits and all that data that is a product in of itself. We can also use that to pre-target. So um, this is generally a manual process. The targeting process is survey design, and it's lots, lots of manual kind of back and forth with the with the company. With our platform, when you launch a study, it's it's a completely self-serve uh, process where you can just choose the audience you want to pre-target, mm. then choose the study, and and then launch. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that can turn around within a 
Yeah. yeah. So so just imagine that you're a marketing manager for yeah. maybe a pizza company. And basically your boss told you that you have to run a campaign for students. Mm. You have no idea about students, right? So you go into a platform, you have instant access to about thousand questions about mm. students that allow you to build up your concepts. You can use our early stage test to kind of test out 10 concepts that you build up based mm. on your ideation stage. And then you can do a final stage test to test your concept even further before you launch it. Moving on from that, you can even do like ad tests, um, product tests to make sure they're on the right track. And then finally do campaign effectiveness studies mm. to measure the success of your campaign. And all this can be done within minutes of launching and days of getting the results back. And that's where we're really different from uh, the other research agencies. One of the studies that I really like is a, it's a crisis impact study. So if you're a brand that's hit, hit with a crisis, uh, you can launch one of these studies to figure out how bad it is. And the other thing that's really nice about the pre-programmed studies is we can actually give you benchmarks. Because the questions are fully standardized, we can tell you what an average purchase intent score is or uh, awareness score based on all the other brands that have run this study. And that's really nice because it gives you a, a benchmark for your results. You actually know if you're doing crisis impact, mm. you know, just how bad is it like United Airlines bad or is it like, mm -hmm. um, you know, not uh, something, something more innocuous. So you're talking about, for example, when PR goes wrong, how yeah. do you deal with it? Yeah. So we've run a couple recently. So like the, the spies incident, which, yeah. which somebody got, um, food poisoning and, and sadly passed away. That was, that was, that was a really, it was, there was generally you look at two things, like how aware is the total population mm. of the incidents and, you know, a moderate uh, crisis would probably be in the 40 to 50% range, a high crisis, like the spies thing, or even the MINDEF issue that it breaks like 80%, like the whole country is talking about it. Yeah. And then you look at the impact that it has. So you generally purchased in 10 or something like that. Like this, this change your view of the company. And so again, something like the United Airlines mm. um, issue or even Spice, um, those were high awareness and also had a high impact on, on consumers' Um, view of the brand. right? Um, and so this is valuable because a lot of people, you know, brands can get into lower level crises that are not as big of a deal, but they don't have a yardstick to know just how bad. So I've got the research data back and I know that, you know, X percent are aware, but how good mm. or bad is this compared to other similar Absolutely. crises? And time as well. It's how yeah. important that. So is that post fact or is that, can that be simulated? Uh, it's post. That's yeah. actually a good, good, a uh, good uh, idea around doing kind of like modeling and simulation. Yeah. Um, but uh, right now it'll be after the fact. So right. your brand is in crisis. Gotcha. You can launch it um, kind of right, right away. Yeah. But we never do it in a prompted way. So we won't ask you like, "Oh, this crisis happened, and do you hear about it?" Right, <laughs> and yeah. stuff like that. We will just ask, "Do you hear anything about brand A?" Right, right. Exactly. And then go on from there. And as a result, we can kind of provide a more kind of a balanced survey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And kind of not stir negative PR from the research that we are doing as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think you're um, you're in a very interesting space. And we've only just done one of the case studies that's on your pitch deck. I mean, obviously, it's there for people to have a look at. And obviously, they can reach out to you if they yeah. want to find out more. But I love what you're doing. I think that you like we started out this conversation about, you know, it's that corporate dropout and it said in yeah. a very positive way, that attitude towards building a startup is that, you know, what is wrong and what yes. can be broken and what can be, you know, sorry, what can be fixed. And also you have a network to go with that, right? Exactly. You, you're not one of the, the challenges for any investor investing in a startup is you're bankrolling the education of the founder. Right. But here, you know, you bring in years of experience, you know, with exactly the kind of companies that we're talking about here. So um, let me ask you then sort of going forward, you know, where are you in your journey? Are you raising funds? Are you hiring a team? 
Uh, yeah, so we have 17 people now. We, are still, we still have a few more that we want to hire in to kind of complete the whole team. Yeah. Um, but we just closed our seat round last year around November. We were aiming for about 400,000 raised, but we ended up raising about 1 million. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so that was ones. great. Yeah. Um, so right now our focus is kind of like knuckling down in the two markets we are in, making sure from a tech perspective and commercial perspective, we are tight. Yeah. Um, and then work towards a Series A that will happen probably in the second half of this year. Okay, good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, you'll always be raising. That's the challenge yeah, of being always found. be raising. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and hiring at the moment, you say you've got 17. Do you have any more needs? Yeah, at the so we just have three more people that we want to hire to yeah. just really kind of bolster our ability, ability to kind of service our clients better. Yeah. Uh, and what from would they there, be? What enough. sort of skills? Because pe people do watch this and they say, you know, the good thing about these. Uh, conversations is people watch it and it's not just investors who watch but people who want to yep. work for startups not you know, like job seekers but people who say i want to be in a startup because you know this is my future yep. and i'm looking for a great story to be part of right or a great team or work with a great founder or a team yep. of founders right so what kind of skills are you looking for so mainly within tech and research yeah so these two core areas so we're looking for research managers and we're also mm. looking for more tech developers to make sure our product is as automated as possible okay yeah and would they come from the world of research themselves so i i would yeah, not to cut you off i think because uh, not necessarily i mean uh, that's obviously the that's the obvious place to look um but what we really need on the research side is someone who's kind of critical. Um, you know, you can teach anyone to design questions or or manage a panel and launch surveys. It's it's not it's not hard to do. Um, what we generally look for in research skills is someone who can um, who can design questions, but can also be very critical. Uh, can also help with analysis and things like that, and, right. and can also you know meet, meet with clients and uh, and be comfortable in that. But storytelling is a big part of what we do, especially when it comes to research. You can have great data. That, that looks amazing and is amazing, but if it's presented in a way that's not fabulous, then it kind of fall flat. So um, people that come from backgrounds, sometimes you even find, you, you find people that come from more of a traditional data and insights background, like dealing with first party data or platforms like that. They can even come like out of school from like social sciences or psychology. Yeah. It's that kind of critical thinking. Someone who can yeah. look at something and be like, this is probably not the best way to do it. So let's, let's find other kind of creative solutions to, to doing this. Okay. And culture wise, milieu as a company, this is important for those watching is what is it like? Because you want the right kind of people who come with the right kind of mindset. That's important more than the skills. Like you can train those, as you yeah, say, yeah. in some cases. What's it like inside milieu as a, as a culture? How how are you? I mean, I know you're going to say like we're you know we're open minded, we're innovative. Everybody says that, but are you different in any way? Is there anything sort of like quirky about milieu? I mean, I just come up with one point. We are honest with each other. Yeah. So we we kind of like are honest about the problems we face the good things that we have done. And as a result, we kind of like build a business together as a family mm. uh, without any kind of like red tape and processes. And I think that's the advantage of being a startup, right? Mm. Being being able to be flexible and implementing new ideas. And I think that's always the thing that we want to keep going yeah. as we build our business up. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, the um it's it's been super refreshing for me coming from a long career in small to medium sized businesses and working in like big corporate environments. We have this kind of cool office setup down down on Orchard mm -hmm. Road, which is a essentially a house. So we've got this really kind of cozy, cool space that we work out of. 
Um, but our team is, uh, we've got a really good team. And I think one of the things I've noticed is most companies wrestle with like the right balance of meetings, who should come to meetings, when do we have meetings and when do we try to do stuff? Yeah. And I've observed that we've been kind of quite good at finding that intersection of, um, uh, you know, having kind of team standups and meetings and scrums and just getting stuff done. Mm. Um, and, you know, everyone's at the table for the meetings. You know, we, we, we don't just say, okay, you know, send the, the more junior people away and just have the, the senior leaders. Everyone's kind of have a voice, which I, I'm sure every startup says anyways, but <laughs> there's, yeah. there's definitely truth to that. So it, it's a really, it's a great environment. And I've, uh, again, being my, at my age, being doing my, doing my first startup, um, it's, it's really refreshing. Yeah. It's a good experience. Excellent. Well, Gerald and Stephen, um, you know, it's been a, a real pleasure having you in the studio today and yeah. enjoyed listening to your stories and what you're building with Milia as well. And, you know, you, you've just uh, gone live with your product last month. So um, exciting times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we were talking about Definitely. off air, you actually <laughs> might be able to get some sleep now. So, <laughs> but then you've got the series A round coming up. So no sleep again. Exactly. So <laughs> squeeze some in the next few months, right. please. So I'm, I'm looking forward to an update as well at some point in the future and finding cool. out, you know, how the yeah, journey. Yeah, we'd love to come back. If you yeah. Have. Yeah, Definitely. that'd be cool because, um, you know, there's always either, you know, potential investors, like yeah. your A round is not for a few months, but, that interest starts early yes. on, right? Yeah. You know, and you want to be talking to people before you need money from exactly. them, right? So, and talking about those partnerships as well and people who may want to work for you as well sure. and work in the team. So, what is the best way for anybody watching this to reach out to you? What's the preferred channel that you have? Uh, just go to our website. We have a contact us section and just kind of like key in your message and we reply to you very quickly. Okay. Uh, or LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, you yeah. can find LinkedIn both Gerald, well. Gerald <coughs> and myself on LinkedIn. Okay. Stephen Tracy with the PH, Gerald Ong, A-N-G. And you can just uh, message us on LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll yeah. put it in the show notes so yeah. people can reach out if they want to. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks thank for you so us. much. It's been a real yeah. pleasure. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.